So we are still feeling out the format for our podcast. And one thing we thought about was, of course, a lot of you, if you're coming back for the second time and you've heard the first episode, you'll know Mr. Broom was our teacher, first podcast guest, huge influence on both of us, a hero to both of us. And he always had a quote when he was our homeroom teacher. He always had a quote of the day on the board. And we thought in order to enhance the conversation and in honor of him, we should have a quote of the day, a quote of the episode for every episode of our podcast. And I don't know if this next part will become a permanent fixture, but we happen to both reveal to each other somehow for the first time in what 12 years of friendship that we both have a favorite poem very bold thing to admit and it turned out both of our favorite poems are actually by robert frost and we thought we'd give you a quote of a quote for this episode and we'd read off our favorite poems we don't know if a poem a piece and a quote for every episode will be a permanent thing but it just kind of felt like what we ought to do for this one so an intelligent man neither allows himself to be controlled nor attempts to control others. He wishes reason alone to rule, and that always. And that's Jean de la Bruyere, who I believe was, um, I'll have to go over it again, but around the 1600s, I believe, he was a essayist and a poet and a, a philosopher. Some of his writings are pretty interesting. But um, I may have the time period wrong, but either way, I want to go back and read some of his stuff. And I think that's a kind of, um, to me, that's a kind of synopsis of what I want. It actually turns out to be quite virtuous because as you guys will find out in a minute, that's the lack of rule by reason is kind of what we talked about during this, the entirety of this podcast in one form or another. And it, it's, I, I want to branch off of this later after the poems and kind of talk about communication and how people try to control other people through narratives and discussions and why podcasts I think are probably the most important thing to have happened thus far in the Western world. That seems pretty bold to say, but I think it's true. So Chase, I want you to do your poem first since you claim that you have it completely memorized. I want to watch and, and hear you say it. Nothing Gold Can Stay by Robert Frost. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf is a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. I heard it in a college world lit class, and it destroyed me. That, that is the tragedy of existence summed up perfectly. Nothing gold can stay. I didn't intend to memorize it. I didn't work to memorize it. I heard it one time in class. There's a recording on YouTube. Anyone can look it up of Robert Frost reading that poem. In his later years, during a live reading. And my teacher said, this is one of the poems we're going to go over in this next chapter on 
poetry from various periods and she just hit play and it was that video was pulled up she clicked play and it took off and i listened to him read it one time and it was burned into my brain has been ever since yeah that is it is really true that that's like the that's the frustrating thing about the world it really is because things start out so great always the ideas are so great and everything just falls apart you look a little thunderstruck after hearing that i don't know if that's because the the message of the poem or whether you're just stunned that i actually had it memorized both i think the reason i don't have mine memorized is just because it's so long it's four paragraphs so i'm kind of hesitant to read the entire thing but i'm going to do it anyway so mine is The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, which is a poem that almost every freshman in the United States has probably been forced to read, but I don't think anyone's ever read it. Because if you hear people talk about it, the idea is that he's talking about taking the road less traveled and that that's what defined his life. And so you, it's, a, it's kind of like a cultural thing that you always take the road less traveled because that's the one that, where your heart lies. Well, listen to the poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That poem blew my mind as a, what was I, 18, 17? Because I had changed my major twice already, and I've changed it twice since then, I think, if not formally, informally. And you hear people, great men and great thinkers, always talk about how they took this or that path and that, you know, great leaders, these things made them great. I think the reality is, is that everything is half chance and that if you're destined for greatness, you never know it. And that people attribute too much to their choices and not enough to just luck and fate. And I don't think that anyone really has a plan for what they're going to do. I think things just tend to happen to them. And so it kind of is a relief to me. I don't think it's so much chance and fate as it is. It it appears to be chance. And I wrote a poem the other night. I should have, if I had known we were going to do poems, I wrote one the other night that I was very proud of. I, I had about a week ago, I decided to listen watch and listen to the recording of Charles Bukowski's last public reading. 
Who's Charles Bukowski? You don't know who Bukowski is. The stuntman? Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm going to admit this to our listeners one time, and I'm going to pray it never comes up again. I went through a period late in high school where I was seriously into poetry, and yes, I sometimes, because I can't help myself, scribble one down. And I'm hoping there are some other people who are either happily or, re or regretfully into poetry out there who will understand what a tragedy it is that my friend of so many years and partner in this venture does not know who Charles Bukowski is. I must needs remedy this, or I will have failed you. There is a Bukowski that's a stuntman, right? I have no clue. I'm talking about the poet laureate of California. Anyway... I'll show it to you, and maybe maybe we can drop it in here. It's not that I'm tooting my own horn. It's that it came to me, and I wrote it down, and then hours later, I happened to pick my iPad back up and read what I'd written, and I went, Jesus. I've written a lot of poems, but most of them were in high school, and I don't think I'd ever want to read them again. There's no telling what's in there. Truth is, if there was any outlet for someone to write poetry and be paid for it, I could probably make a good living doing that. But I don't know of any outlet where anyone pays for poetry. Yeah, it's strange how something that used to be an entire class of society, poets and writers, it, it's almost, well, I mean, you could say that, you know, artists today, independent or with labels are kind of our poets, our modern poets, but there's an art form that was lost, I think. Well, I say that, but I wonder, like, if you paint a, a picture and you sell print, Rodrig of New Orleans got very wealthy as a, an artist because he sold prints of his artwork, which I'm sure he was criticized for being commercial for, but I call that being a great artist and having good business sense. But, I wonder if there's something to the idea. I mean, if you see a meme, if you go on somebody's website and there's a quote posted or there's a meme, surely the person who has the poem copyrighted is getting paid so much for every appearance it makes. And if you think about how often you actually see some kind of poetry quoted, mm -hmm. even if it's just in a greeting card, if you write a piece of poetry and Hallmark buys it to use or agrees to use it in one of their cards, you get paid a percentage of what they get for every card. Now, you think of how many of any given card is going to be sold by Hallmark in every year. Doesn't that seem kind of ennoble for what poets used to be, though? They were working with different conditions. Relocated to the love and affection and sorrow aisle of Hobby Lobby. Well, see, that's the reason I, I've never done any I could I can't bring myself to do serious research as to whether there'd be money in, in writing poetry for the purpose of commercial use because I mean almost every poet that that you can think of had some other profession that made them their meals and poetry was just something they did often in obscurity and then after they died some son, daughter, niece, nephew, someone who inherited their estate and their private papers was going through boxes and boxes and they suddenly found 50 poems that the person had written and never done anything with. Same for a lot of authors, too. I mean, 
technically you could say the bulk of J.R.R. Tolkien's work was hidden in his desk because he had The Hobbit and he had The Lord of the Rings published, but he also had The Similarium, which was just a collection of writings about the lore, which is much more dense and expansive than the books are. So even he had the bulk of his writing unknown to the world. And it's interesting how media changes because we've now corporized media. Corporatized? Yeah. We've, I mean, like think for instance of video game companies, they're corporations now, whereas before it was a team of four people who wrote games for the Atari. Now you have to have several hundred million dollars of funding to produce a video game because you have to compete with Hollywood and you have to compete with television series and it's like commanding attention is a lot harder than it used to be, maybe. Where one person could dominate an entire form of literature for 20 years, now it's up in the air who's going to be the next bestseller every day. Or if there even will be bestsellers because just written prose is becoming an extinct form of expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you factor out blogs... And things like that. I'm talking about pure <clears throat> fiction and nonfiction writing. That kind of communication's dying out. I think it has a lot to do with attention spans more than it does that. It's not that books are useless. I really think that there's been like a deep change in the psychological aspect of humans because. And I, I have to feel like it was driven by television. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing because we have kind of morphed. We've almost gone back to the roots because now audiobooks, I would say, are almost more popular than real books. And I listen to audiobooks. And I think it just has to do with how busy people are. I really have a hard time sitting down and reading because I have to do things that I can... For instance, if I spend four hours a day driving... That's four hours a day that I'd rather spend reading, but instead I have to listen to YouTube lectures and I have to listen to audiobooks and podcasts in order to educate myself because I don't have time to read. So there's like an unfair expectation on the public to produce and work, but at the expense of education. Well, you know, a lot of the way I am and the way I think and the way I express myself is rooted in reading great authors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd cite Charles Dickens as a huge influence. And that goes to all the way from Plato, Charles Dickens, several authors who unfortunately, if I named them, no one would know who I was talking about. And, but mm, in spite of my admiration for great prose writers, I think if we're honest about it, better mediums of expression are available are available now. Mm. I mean, if you think about it, what what makes a book that you can stick with? What what does a writer do that allows them to write a book that you'll stick with? There's a groove, and you've got to hit it within four pages. When you start the book, there's a groove you have to get into where you have such a clear mental picture and you're dying to know what comes next. And that talent to 
carve that groove and steer your reader into it is rare. Mm -hmm. But with television, because it's so visual, as long as you've got a half-decent actor and some good special effects and a good screenwriter, you're in the groove right away because you're actually seeing it happen. And through the magic of Hollywood, it looks like it's actually happening. And I would say video games in the end, for the most part, will probably replace television because gaming is such a huge phenomenon. Couples schedule time apart. They make time to sit down and watch a television show together. But do you know of a man who doesn't have some kind of gaming console and who doesn't play it at every given opportunity? Hmm. So instead of watching TV, the new thing is play video games. I don't know if video games will beat television, though, because um, I think you tend to want to be uh, passive rather than active when you consume. I don't agree, simply because the best act, the best writers are ones that cause you to develop extremely vivid immersive mental pictures mm -hmm. a tv allows you to just you have an immediate immersive detailed visual picture because there is a you're not having to visualize anything it's right there in front of you which leaves you room in your brain to add to it and rewrite the story the way you'd like it to be and video games go a step beyond that because to varying degrees, depending on what are, what is the main quality of the best video games. Your choices affect the outcome of the game. And there's an open world, meaning you get to do with, with limits, within certain limits. You get to do things in the order you want to do them, the way you want to do them. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a clear progression. A lot of people me included on a bad day would probably say that novels are the highest form of literature. Novels and poetry are the highest forms of communication and television is a bad commercial ripoff of novel writing and video games are even a worse commercial ripoff of television and novels and poetry. I actually think that in fact a video game from the standpoint of giving a mental picture and causing a reader to actually feel the effects of choices and to actually feel trapped in the situation you want them to feel trapped in, video games are probably the highest form of literature we have. I can agree with that. The problem I have with video games is that it feels like the, the suspension of disbelief is a bit higher for a video game than it is for a movie or a novel. So it's like, I have a hard time falling into video games. I didn't when I was younger, but now that I'm older, I have a hard time playing video games because I know that it stops being real as soon as I put the controller down. But there's something about novels and there's something about literature and, and filmed things that capture me more than the video game does because the video game feels 
artificial because I have to put the input into it. And it, it, it's like a, it's, it's a strange reversal for me to where it doesn't feel as real and it feels more gamey and I lose interest. But I can sit and watch a movie and be completely sucked into it. But I do think I agree with like the fact that we're moving towards better forms of communication. Because, for instance, there's something, a, a good author, when they write, let's, if they're writing something informative, the fact that they can sit and really meditate on what they're writing provides a punch to their literature. But if you get that same author and have them speak about their ideas and record it in a video or in a live lecture, it feels so much more organic and tangible that it, it, the spoken word kind of usurps the written word. And I think the spoken word is probably more real than the written, the written word ever will be, which is kind of like the difference between, you know, um, reading, a, reading a conversation or watching a staged conversation versus like a podcast. That's kind of like the difference between written literature and a video game too. It's like more dynamic and less predictable. It's organic and can actually change while you're doing it. Well, and you feel, I think this, as the tone of what the story you're telling becomes darker and darker, I think this becomes more true. You're also able, with video games, video games more so than a t television show or a film, and with video games or a television show or a film more than a novel, you're able to really make the person you're trying to communicate with feel what you want them to feel you read a novel it's sympathy mm. and empathy because it's character. not happening to you exactly and it's the same thing with tv and film but with a visual element added with a video game and that's why i say as it gets darker this becomes more true. Would you rather read a Stephen King novel or play Outlast? If you're trying to avoid getting scared, but you have to do one or the other, would you rather play Outlast, watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or read it? If you're trying to avoid getting scared, I would <clears throat> I would say you would read it, but I have read some very excellent horror writing too. So that you can, there is a hierarchy, but you can do such a darn good job of it that you surpass even higher forms of art. So it's 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 true, but at the same time, if you're a good enough writer, it's almost lasts forever. It can't be broken. Oh, yeah, I mean, at a certain level of skill in storytelling, a good writer can write with any pen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it gets to a point where I don't like horror films and I don't like horror books, but I really like horror video games, not because I like horror, but because that's where the immersive element of video games seems to show through the best. And maybe that in the long run, that's a negative thing. Mm 
but horror, blood, gore, frightening sounds. What's the most famous aspect of a an American horror video game or any horror video game? Jump scares. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't do that any better than with a video game. Yet I love the Silence of the Lambs. You're never gonna make. Please, no one try this. That's hearing my voice. You're never gonna make a good Hannibal Lecter video game. Right. Like you, you would, you could never make a, a video game that was even one thousandth of the quality of the Silence of the Lambs film. Well, I think that has to do with the fact that that movie is. And and you and let it be said, the movie. I love it, and as ingenious as it was, I don't think, though it's up there, I don't think it's as good as the experience of reading Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs novel. Well, that's what, that, that still follows the point I was going to make. That's because it's such a character-driven. It's the character of Hannibal Lecter that is terrifying. It's not the environment. It's not that it's trying to get you. It's that It's really the fact that you're shocked that someone could imagine this character and make them and animate them realistically. That's what's horrific about it. And watching what this character does in this microcosm, this kind of micro universe that is believable because it's based, there's nothing in it that contradicts your reality. That's what's terrifying about it is watching the actor play out in the a fake world. But what makes a video game scary is like what you said, the interactivity, the jump scares, the fact that you're being chased, that you have limited control over the character too also makes you anxious. Because it makes you very anxious, and, and it translates readily into real physical and mental states that you don't have to work hard to imagine. Like the feeling of my, I'm pushing the button, but my character is not running fast enough to get away from that enemy. You can imagine not being able to outrun someone trying to kill you. One thing, like it's immediately real as soon as you feel it. You you get it. You're there. You haven't experienced it yet, but like I was showing you the VR, there are terrific horror VR games. And as soon as you go into the environment, you have to think that your eyes are now shielded. You don't know, you lose connection with your physical environment. You have the the audio playing in your ears, drowning out anything else around you. And you're you have ominous music, everything's dim. And you have very limited control over your character because you can't actually physically run. You can only move the joystick on the controller. And you can look around in 3D and rotate your body and squat and jump and all of that. And it mimics it in the game. And so it's like you're plugged in. And it's absolutely terrifying. It it, it does something a traditional video game can't do, which is make you feel as if you need to look behind you. Because something could be there. On the video game screen, it's just on the screen. And you turn your character and you're afraid when the character moves. But you don't fear for your actual back. But in the VR, even though you can't feel the touch, the sensation of being watched from behind activates. And it's so terrifying that you can't do it. You just chicken out and you take the headset off. But the trick is that you forget that you can take the headset off. And that's how it tricks you because you think that visually you're in the environment and you try to run 
And a lot of people, you can look on YouTube, you'll see just all kinds of people just run with the headset on and trip and fall. I've seen that in people just grown men scream like banshees and fall over backwards out mm -hmm. of their chairs or collapse in the corner sobbing because really and that was my and point they laugh about, too because it's absurd because they there's a simultaneous knowledge that it's not real but it felt so real oh dang that was a great vr video game like they're gonna make a lot of money on that and at the same time jesus christ i am about to be killed violently that's why i like games like uh well, you and I have talked extensively about the Outlast series. Mm -hmm. Like that—that that is, they have figured that out. Like that is the way to make a person as scared as they can possibly be is to put them in that environment and then to add insult to injury. You can run, and that's all. Mm -hmm. You can't even throw a punch. Might less pick up a gun or a blade and try to fight the enemy off. Your options are run and hide i wonder if the attraction towards that kind of experience is kind of driven by the fact that it's more of a curiosity of what it would be like if we weren't dominant if we were still the prey species because you very rarely experience being truly afraid in real life because you're so not only are you inundated with stimulus but you're in control of so many things if you're driving down the road you might be going 100 miles an hour but you have this feeling as if you're in control of the vehicle and if you walk down a street you're generally not afraid you may create fears that someone's going to mug you or take you or shoot you or something but you realize at the same time that the statistics of that are so unlikely well i think it's a it's a it's a glimpse of what the world would look like if there were not civilization and you were prey well like you're walking down the street you can be reasonably confident that 19 out of 20 people you see wouldn't do you any harm like even if you got if you got into a traffic accident or you got into an argument with them in a coffee shop or a library or something mm -hmm. You might get extremely angry, but there's that that assumption of civility in the back of your head that goes, this person doesn't want to hurt me deep down. Other people don't want to hurt me. But then you go into an environment like the one they create in the Outlast games where you have zero allies and everything wants to kill you. And maybe that's more comforting than the reality of being anxious about what could happen is because you're in, in reality, you're presented with so many ifs. What if, what if this happened? What if this person did this to me? What if I'm not safe here? If you're in that environment of the video game, you know for certain that you're not safe and that you're being hunted. And maybe that's more comforting. Maybe there's a kind of comfort to that, to knowing. I'd rather go to Starbucks than play Outlast. Well, there's a comfort in. Yeah, just, just saying, man. Like. Like, I got it done, but I'm not going to lie to you. It was not easy. And I was sitting there going, you are a grown man. This is a video game. There are not. Chris Walker is not actually stalking through the hallways of your house. Hunting let me. You. Let me give a weird example that you might not be able to follow. And if you can't, just tell me. But when I used to work at the mental hospital, 
there was always this tension of knowing that something could go wrong, that someone could have an outburst, someone could start a fight, or that someone could try to hurt you. And that tension drove me insane because I was always watching. I was always waiting for something to happen. When something finally did happen, someone yelled at me, someone hit someone else. We had to put someone in a hold and lock them in the isolation room. When something did happen, it was such a relief. It was like, oh, finally it happened. The bad thing happened and now there's control. That is something I'd never experienced in life, wanting destruction so that I could have control over the situation. Because until the destruction came, I was powerless. It was this weird dynamic that was completely unhealthy. But I feel like that's probably how people lived for a long time before things were so civilized and so orderly. I think there was this sense of tension. Incessantly waiting for the hammer to drop. Or for the predator to come. Or for the disease to strike. And there's this kind of, there's a euphoria that comes when the bad thing happens because you feel the relief. And you realize, oh, I didn't, all my worries, not most of them were irrelevant, but this one was relevant. And I finally, I know which one was relevant. So there may be a kind of self-medicating neurosis and horror well that may be why video games work because you would think fight or flight instincts you think about the average human being if you dump them off in the mount massive asylum of the outlast games and they were surrounded by cannibalistic psychotic animals human cannibalistic psychotic animals that they had lots of evidence would kill and eat them They'd probably find one hiding spot where they didn't seem to be being tracked and they'd just hunker down there and curl into a ball and breathe and whimper mm-hmm. silently but until the- someone came to rescue them. But then you play the game and you find yourself daring, daring, like to get power over the situation. As soon as you find the locker. That Chris Walker checks the one next to you and then walks out of the room. And you think, I got away. No sooner does his back, that's a character in Outlast for any of you who haven't played the Outlast games. I should probably stop bringing them up so much, but kind of fresh on my brain. As soon as his back rounds the door facing and he's walking away after he just chased you across an entire floor and you were thinking he was going to kill you and you weren't going to be able to get away from him and you finally got out of his sight and you ducked into a hiding place and he checked the room and walked out not looking for you anymore and you think victory and the first thought that enters your brain as soon as he starts to walk out of the room is okay where can I go next Mm -hmm. knowing he's going to chase you again or something other horrible thing which by the way outlast creators Outlast level designers, digital artists, coders, all of you. If you're listening to this podcast at any point in the future, you people are so good at what you do, but please stop. <laughs> yeah. In genius games, and please, for the love of God, make more Outlast games, but like next time, I wouldn't mind you giving out two free volumes with every copy of the game that's sold. So, yeah, that's an interesting aspect. I'm not actually giving a company advice to hand out drugs with their video games, so don't try to sue us. That's an interesting aspect of the horror. It gives you a chance 
to have power in a powerless situation. Because if you beat the game, you survive. And it that's such a simple and straightforward idea that all you have to do is survive and you win. That's much different than the reality we live in where survival is almost guaranteed to the point that I think a lot of depression and anxiety comes from the fact that survival comes so easily. You don't have to fight for it. So it's weird that you can get satisfaction by putting yourself in a situation where it's not guaranteed 